You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1 if you'd like, or on your phone. We are starting the book of Genesis, which um, is a very large book. There's a lot that could be said about this book. And initially, when I had kind of planned it out, I had us spending the whole year in this book, like every Sunday pretty much. And the elders were like, whoa, let's just like take it easy here, you know. Let's spread this out a little bit. So we're doing part one here, okay? And this is going to be a four-part series at some point over the next few years here. And Genesis essentially is about four families. It's the family of Adam and Eve and the family of Abraham and the family of Isaac and the family of Joseph. And so we're going to break it up into those four families. And Genesis helps us understand a little bit of our own uh, story of origin. Every one of us, if you want to kind of understand yourself as a person, how you've come to be who you are, your family of origin is a massive piece of that. The other day... um, it was like a week ago or something. I think we were sitting, I was sitting with my youngest. We were having breakfast, talking about something. I, and um, I think I was like a little bit drugged up, you know. I was on like meds and stuff. And so I went down like this deep family like history thing. And, and I looked up and she was just like kind of staring at me, you know. Like, and I was like, sorry, that's just like family of origin stuff, you know. Like I just took you way down the road there. But all of us have good and bad things about our family of origin. All those things shape us. They make us into who we are. And Genesis, in many ways, if you're a Christian, is part of your family of origin story. It's part of what God has done in the past. And it has shaped your faith. Primarily because when we come to the New Testament, it is just steeped in theology, ideas, narratives, all coming from Genesis. So this morning we're starting out on a grand journey to look at the book itself. First uh, chapters 1 through 11, and today we're going to start in chapter 1. And many people, when they come to chapter 1, they think that this is going to be the Sunday where... You know, the person on the stage, the preacher, is going to solve all the problems that come from this chapter, okay? And there are many. Some of you may be aware of them. Some of you may not be aware of them. But um, answering all kinds of issues related to creation, you know, like creating all kinds of things in a 24-hour period, or is there like a gap theory, or is there millions of years between, you know, these moments of creation? Does the word create actually mean this or that? What about the dinosaurs? Is it going to answer the question about all the dinosaurs, you know, all these kinds of things? I'm sorry to tell you we're not going to go into all those details this morning, okay? I'm happy to have conversations about some of those questions um, after in the foyer, but honestly, we just don't have time to deal with all those issues, though the text addresses some of them right on the spot here. But mostly, we're not going to address those issues, especially in Genesis chapter 1, because the text itself is not really answering those questions. That is not the primary purpose of what Genesis 1 is actually setting out to do. 
and we can get many good answers. It's primary focus, and the primary driving thought is not all the details surrounding the creation narrative, though they're in there. The verses are in there, and many details are in there, and we're going to look at some of them. But the, the primary driving idea is that God is at the center of creation. This is what Genesis 1 wants us to grasp a hold of. That when it comes to creation and all that is happening, God is the center of the story. Derek Kidner, who is an Old Testament uh, theologian, who was an Old Testament theologian, writes this, It is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. The passage, indeed the book, whether it's the book of Genesis or even the book, the Bible, the book itself, is about him first of all. To read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. So when we come to Genesis 1 and all the kind of what questions come to your mind, the text actually wants us to set those aside so that the who question of God is of primary importance on our mind. And so in this text this morning, we're going to look at God himself. We're going to think about God for about the next like 30 minutes or so. And we're going to think about God in three different qualities. Okay, it's this, that God is a God who creates, God is a God who speaks, and God is a God who gives. We're going to look at those three things. So let's begin with God is a God who creates. So, verse 1, we just heard it read, reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you have a Mac computer, I don't know how many Mac owners there are here. The first time you turned it on, I don't know if you remember, there's like a note that rings forth, right? Supposedly it's a C major. It's just like, you know, it's like, this is the first opening of a Mac computer, this verse, verse 1 here, is like a note that is resounding out for us. It is summarizing essentially chapters 1 and 2 here. In one sentence, it is capturing for us, God created. God did something before anything existed. Before any of the stuff was around, God was there. And then into that... Um, what we would call nothingness. Obviously God was there, so something was there. God was there. But into that void of space, God then comes now and he creates. He does something that is very unlike us. He takes no seeming resources around him and he makes something. He creates. God makes the heavens. God makes the earth. God does what we are unfamiliar with. We, like if you think of a, an artist, you think of someone who has been inspired. So Michelangelo's painting of the creation of Adam is like very famous. I don't know if anybody has actually been to the space and seen this, but it is a famous painting of this act of creating Adam that Michelangelo was trying to capture. And it's one of, I think there's uh, eight or, or ten different scenes that Michelangelo captured about the creation of the world. 
And Michelangelo can paint something like this because of the inspiration of what he sees around him. Not only the inspiration, inspiration of the narrative of God creating the world, but even just using human specimens to paint the details of the, the muscles of the Adam on the left, who was completely naked, but I decided not to show that, okay? And then, and then God, funny enough, who's dressed, okay? God is dressed on the right. And um, the beauty of this image comes from inspiration. It comes from somewhere. And then a human artist is able to paint that onto a ceiling or onto a canvas. God is not like that. God's unlike us in that way. He needs no inspiration. He needs no first something to draw an idea from, like we do as artists or as makers. God can start with nothing, a void, which is what he does here in Genesis 1. Nothing. There's just him, and he creates. From this comes the creation of the world and all the things that we see and glory in. So in the rest of the chapters, verses 3 all the way to verse 31, we have described for us all these different layers of creation. So we're just going to very quickly go over some of them to highlight them. We're not going to look at them all in detail. But in verse 3, we see that God begins by, in this void, he begins by creating light. So he, he brings onto the scene the very thing that enables life to exist. Our world would not exist without a source of light. So God brings light into the world, and then he specifies that light by creating day and night, verses 4 and 5, so that we have nighttime, which, man, this morning it was really dark, wasn't it? When you, I don't know when you got up. Maybe you should just... From the scene, like everybody's here by 9.30, but I'm not sure when you actually get up to get here, okay? But this morning it was just really dark, and the other day the sun was shining. Wasn't that so nice? Sun is just out, people are smiling, everybody's happier. God makes this sun, and for us, the sun is 150 million kilometers away from us. And it still rises every day for us, shines light on our world allows things to grow and to be able to have life. And we are given this wonderful gift of the sun. I looked up, here's one stat for the sun, just for us to kind of take in, that the sun in 15 minutes radiates enough energy for the entire world to use. So all the energy that it takes for our planet to run, everything that we're doing, the sun gives enough energy in 15 minutes for us to have all that we needed. God gives us day and night. Then it says in verses 6 through 7 that God gives us the atmosphere, this space separating space from where we live on land here. And God gives us dry land and plants, verses 9 through 13. And so we live in a world now that has over 400,000 plant species. Just this massive variety of plants on the planet that we can, some of them we can eat, we can use to grow things. Then it says in verses 14 through 19 that God creates the rest of the planets. And I've talked about the, 
James Webb uh, telescope a few times. James Webb camera is the, the uh, highest resolution camera that humans have ever sent into space. And so it's out there now, and it's just regularly sending back pictures. So I included a couple here. If, if you go to the next slide, it shows this, like, this amazing shot in high resolution off into space looking at different clusters of stars and galaxies and go to the next one um these like magnificent it looks like a work of art doesn't it these are high resolution pictures of the galaxies and galaxies that are out there that for the naked eye just look like black space but for a camera ready to go captures the glory of it in our own galaxy here there are a hundred billion stars like our sun. A hundred billion stars like our sun. And like, okay, maybe there's like a hundred and one billion. Okay, how do we know there's like a hundred billion exactly? Here's what it means. There's a lot of them, okay? And we are only one galaxy of what scientists guess is a hundred billion galaxies. A hundred billion suns in a galaxy that is one of a hundred billion galaxies. God creates this. He makes it. Then he goes on and he creates marine life and birds in verses 20 through 23. Just this all kinds of different birds that are out there. And then verses 24 and 25, he creates animal life. And, and I just decided to highlight one of my favorite ones which is the platypus, okay? I don't know if anybody has ever seen in real life a platypus. I never have, but I really want to. There's pictures online of people like kind of holding them like a little baby. I don't know if that's, I don't think that's possible because the platypus is such a strange animal. It's like a beaver and a duck put together and it lays eggs and then on the back of its uh, back feet, it's got little talons that it can actually spike you and it's got poison in those talons. So I guess I'm not going to do this, okay, with a little platypus. But it's a strange animal. It's so strange that when they sent drawings and samples back to England from Australia in the late 1700s, the English thought it was a joke. They're like, this is a hoax. This cannot be a real animal that looks like this and exists like this, but it ended up being a real thing. God made this. This is just one of hundreds of thousands of animals that are out there that he created out of his creative mind and for us to enjoy. And then finally, verses 26 through 31, God made people, humans. And we're going to focus mostly on that next week where God brings into the creative act the pinnacle of his creation, which is man and woman. So, this may be the understatement, like, forever, but God is creative. God is magnificently creative. He brings that to bear in thousands and thousands of ways for us to witness and to be witnesses to that God has actually done this. But what we see in creation, as we look at the text here, is that there is a separateness between us and God 
we are created. So we've got this list here of light and day and night, the atmosphere, dry and land, plants, and then it finally ends with humans. We are the pinnacle of his creation. God is not the pinnacle of that list. What we discover from creation is that God is actually separate. He is outside of creation. So that God is above all of creation. But God wants to. God is in willful relation to creation. So God does not just like do this like experiment of creation, make this thing, and then kind of walk away and make another one somewhere, do a whole other creative act. No, God is intimately connected to what he has created. He is transcendent, meaning he is above and beyond. He's beyond all these things, and yet he is imminent. He is near. He is close to creation. So we are created in his image. We are made for him, and yet he is separate and different from us. God makes. And there are many reasons why God has created. There's many reasons our flourishing and all kinds of ways that we exist within creation. But the primary reason, reason is that God created these things so that he would be glorified, so that his greatness would be lifted high. There would be transcendence that would happen. And this happens in creation. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this, where you experience something in creation, maybe going, you know, up a mountain or maybe by a waterfall, where possibly you verbalize, you say like, wow, this is magnificent. Or maybe like in a, like in a whisper, because you don't want people to like see you, you're like, wow. Or maybe it's just inside what you've just witnessed. The beauty of this moment is a amazing moment of God's creation. I, I get that. I know I've talked about this multiple times here. I get that with sunsets. Even in suburbia Elmira, okay, this is a shot from my house. That's Kildeer Road right there, okay? So there's nothing glorious about the neighborhood. But it's just like summertime, another sunset. I'm just like, I have to capture that moment. I know that like the houses are there and everything. It's just a glorious moment. This is part of what creation is all about. It's about looking at a moment like that and saying, someone made that and it wasn't me. God created. Mike Cosper says this, the accumulated body of scientific knowledge can tell us all about the canvas, the oils and minerals that combine to make a work of art but they cannot tell us why it takes our breath away. And that's because God has made the world around us so that we would glory in his name. From our, the, our most inner being, we would experience his presence, his glory. Psalms chapter 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. So every day, every like sunset, it's just pouring out speech every day. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist here is putting in poetic lyric for us the very thing that creation was meant to do. It's meant for us to sing gloriously to God, to glory that there is someone who can create and who can make out of nothing, and he has made everything around us. So we see here that our God creates. But second, not only does God create, but we also see here that this is the God who speaks. So some churches have the um, practice that when they do scripture reading, we've tried to do this a few times, but it's never really stuck with us here at Citizens. They'll do like a scripture reading, and then they'll say, the word of the Lord. And in the congregation, what do they say? Thanks be to God, right? See, it's, it's not our tradition, okay? It's the word of the Lord, and then we say, thanks be to God. It is a way for the church gathered to remind itself of what is actually happening. When the scriptures are read out loud, when the word of God is read, the congregation is reminded, thanks be to God. This is God's word that is being spoken here. This is not just a book it's not just a history book. It's not just a fiction book. It's not just Shakespeare that's wonderful and poetic. These are the words of God. And so when we come here to the text, we see that ten times it says, and God said, and God said. God actually speaks. And when God speaks, creation comes. Things are made. Something happens. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9 Read this way. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So God, through the act of speaking, through his very words, he makes something. He creates. He doesn't just build with his hands. He actually speaks, and it is done. How long does it take us to make something? When's the last time you made something? How long does it take to make it? Well, obviously, it depends on the raw materials that are needed. I don't make a lot of things, okay? I, I tend to work with words and, you know, screens. The one thing that I do do is about once a week or every couple weeks, I make sourdough bread, okay? So I make some sourdough bread. And sourdough bread is actually very simple, there's only three things that you need in sourdough bread. Flour, salt, and water. And even the starter, the gooey starter thing that you use is pretty much made out of flour and water. So these three things, and surprisingly I can still mess it up, okay? But these three things are all it takes to make sourdough bread. You bring them together. But when you think about it, the raw material of salt flour, and water is at least weeks in the making. Probably more like months 
possibly years. All the work that is involved in planting those seeds and harvesting those seeds and turning those seeds into flour and for the water to be clean, all the details of that. And, and then let alone all the instruments that are needed to, to bring that about, the machinery and the people working behind the scenes, three ingredients just to make sourdough bread. And here we see in our text, ten times God speaks. He just uses words. He says something, and something is created. Something is made. The text here is shining a spotlight on this is who God is. God is unlike us. We take so much effort to do something. God, with ease, creates through the power of his word. And this story in Genesis was recorded. This is, Genesis is the first of the five books of the Bible, which is, which is the Pentateuch. And those were collected, written down primarily through Moses. And the context is that Moses is collecting these stories for the children of Israel, especially the Genesis narrative. They are coming out of Egypt, where they've been surrounded by Egyptian stories and Egyptian creation myths. And probably in many cases, they have believed those stories. And now Moses is saying, listen, Israelites, this is the true and better story. The true and better story is that God actually speaks and God creates through his word. And so to us then, over time has been given his word in the, in the form of the Bible. We continue now in this day and age to have competing narratives given to us, even competing creation narratives given to us. And the word of God is here to be handled and to be savored and to be taken in so that we are visually experiencing and seeing the word of God in action. That God's word still speaks that God's word still acts. It's still creative and powerful in what it can do. Now, many of us know that there are um, arguments related to the uh, validity of the scriptures. Can they be trusted? Have they been like manipulated? Have people changed them over time? And we would all we all should be the first to admit that the scriptures are a a complicated book that in, in many cases is mysterious, especially the further back we go, because it's written to cultures and to people that in many ways are very different from us. Yet, it is, I would say, the most trustworthy ancient text that we have. And not only that, most of us in here have experienced or know people whose lives have been changed in deeply personal ways by the Word of God. The effects of the spoken Word of God have been seen and have been imprinted on many, many lives, even in here. So that when we look at a verse like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we see that the nature of God's Word is still very similar to the nature of it that we see in Genesis 1. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says this, Since you have been born again, a, uh, a new thing has happened. 
not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's what Peter is saying here. The word of God that we have is actually living. It's doing something. It's active. Verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So in Genesis 1, we see God speaks. And the power of his spoken word is a creative power. But the word continues to create and to make things new. As Peter reminds us, it will last forever. It will continue to do its work forever. And we are the product of it. So God creates. God is also the God who speaks. And then lastly, before we do the Lord's Supper, God is the God who gives. So at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see here that God creates and God gives. Now, why does God give? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why does God give? There's no need for God to give. God needs nothing. That's the definition of what it means to be God. You don't need anything when you're God. And yet somehow God creates here and he creates people. So we understand, you know, we understand a, uh, a boss is going to have some employees. They're going to bring some value to his company. And they're going to, like, make it productive. There's going to be some money that's going to be made. And that's how that system works. So there's some need for a boss to have employees. Parents, do parents need kids? Hmm, okay, like how much production are your kids giving to you? Okay, we could go around the room here. How productive are our kids? Sorry to all the kids in the room here, okay? There's a few of them, okay? How productive are the kids to the business of the family? Okay, we're not going to answer that question here, okay? But you can see that there's a difference. Now, God with creation. What return is God getting on his creation? What does he get from us? And yet, depending on how you answer that, and yet God gives. God is self-giving. And we see that in the story of creation, the, this idea of the Trinity actually begins to come out here. We have God the Father who is in verse 1 and in verse 2. It talks about the Spirit that's hovering over. In John's Gospel, we see that Jesus is actually there when the Word is spoken that's actually Jesus who is active and involved. And so we've got here this trinity that is as at work in the act of creation. 
The early church fathers had a word for this. It was called perichoresis, which literally meant a sacred dance. What we're witnessing here is this Trinitarian sacred dance, this self-giving dance where the Trinity is working together. This is where we, from this word, we get the word choreography. So I don't know if you've ever seen that before, like something on stage where people are dancing together, they are doing something together. That's what this is in Genesis 1. It is one dance together where God, out of his very nature, is giving. From this Trinitarian dance comes all that we just looked at, the creative goodness that we have before us. But from the verses that we just read, we have even more than that. We have meaning and purpose that is given to God's people. So verse 24 there again says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish. God is actually giving Adam and Eve a purpose and a meaning to all the work that they're going to be doing. So that we as his people will no longer be people who just do things. We're just not like robots who create stuff and just like live a life. But we actually have purpose and meaning. And that purpose and meaning is connected to our creator. It's connected to God. So by the time we come to the world existing, we see that people are constantly seeking after some sort of thing. When they've walked away from God as their source of meaning and purpose, they're seeking for it in some sort of way. So in Acts chapter 17, and I won't, I have the whole passage there, but I won't take the time to read it all because it takes a little long. We see here that Paul comes into Athens, into a city that has made its identity and made its purpose and meaning, gods and knowledge and ideas. And so Paul comes into that context and he says, I can see that you're trying to find meaning and purpose in these things. And yet, it's not fully landing, is it? So Paul says what they're looking for is actually the God. Verse 25, I'll just read this. Verse 25 says, This is the God who made the world, who's not served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, what you're looking for is meaning and purpose from the God who created everything. The very story that we are studying here in Genesis 1 is the story that gives us our place and our meaning in this world. Whether you're a plumber, a police officer, a firefighter, a pastor, all of these things are filled with all kinds of details and work to do, but the purpose and the meaning behind them is for the glory of God. It's for his fame. So by the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see this vision of God the Creator in relationship with his people. And when we follow through the story, right to the end of Revelation, we see that that very vision comes to its totality. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 and 4, at the end of God's story here, it says this, And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So we have in the garden, God creates mankind and is with them in harmony. It's, it's not explicitly clear, but he is their good and loving king. And then we come to Revelation all the way to the end of the story. And God again is with his people. He is in relationship with them as their good and loving king. And in the middle, we have the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus, where through the greatest act of sacrifice, God comes again to be with his people. He comes near. And the brokenness that sin brings into our world, which we're going to cover in a couple weeks, that brokenness is made right through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that we could be in God's vision again, which is in relationship with him, unhindered, in the presence of a self-giving, loving God.